Father, we have opened our worship service thinking about your grace. We have appealed to you in prayer asking for your grace to guide our worship. We have sung of your grace. We have read of your grace again. We have heard testimony to how your grace has worked in one man's and one family's life. And now, Father, we want to hear again from you about the sufficiency and adequacy and power and authority of your grace and just how amazing your kindness is to us. Would you shape the way we think because of what we hear this morning? And would you change us by what we hear this morning? We pray in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen. Forty years ago this summer, Grace Bible Church had its first worship service. For 40 years, Grace Bible Church has been worshiping God and discipling believers and evangelizing unbelievers and sending the gospel to foreign lands through missions. For 40 years, we have seen and experienced God's faithfulness to us. And as we approach the anniversary date on August the 11th, we want to take three weeks to reflect in particular ways on, on God's faithfulness to us. Just, just how has God been faithful to this church body? We want to be reminded by looking back to the past of God's faithfulness and having that backward reflection stimulate us to see the magnitude of God's faithfulness so that we are encouraged and compelled to trust Him even more in the future. And as we look to the past, I want to focus our thoughts in the next three weeks around three themes that have identified us as a church body. I want to think, first of all, about God's grace. I want to think about the grace that brings us to salvation and the grace that sanctifies us in salvation. Our ministry is encapsulated by the little motto, shepherding God's people by God's grace for God's glory. We we shepherd God's people by pointing them to God's grace that brings salvation. And then once people are saved, we want to shepherd them in the growth of grace in their lives so that they become more like Jesus Christ. And and we do that shepherding, pointing people to grace by grace. That is, we appeal to the Holy Spirit and we depend on the sufficiency of the Spirit of God to see people come to faith and then grow in that faith. Everything we do is by God's grace. We also want to focus on God's Word, the Bible. The Spirit of God is the one who saves. The Spirit of God is the one who sanctifies. And He does that through the Word of God. So we are committed in everything we do around here to hold high the Scriptures, to explain the Scriptures, to compel the Scriptures, to exhort and reprove with the Scriptures so that, so that the Spirit of God has the Spirit's tool, the Word of God, to change people's lives. And then we want to think thirdly about God's church. The the ministry is about God's people. While we gather in a building and we need buildings to facilitate various kinds of ministries, the ministry is not buildings, the ministry is people. And we want to gather together and celebrate and reflect on the provision that we have here through God's people. And you might notice 
a progression in those three themes that I've identified. Grace and Bible and church. Our, our very name reminds us about the priorities of ministry and the purpose of ministry and, and what we are compelled to do and what we desire God to do in us. And this morning we want to consider the first three of these great themes, the theme of God's grace through Paul's letter to the disciple Titus in Titus chapter 2, particularly in verses 11 to 15. And as we make our way through these last five verses of Titus chapter 2, we will find that God's grace is His provision for our past, our present, and our future. God's grace is His magnificent kindness, His His undeserved blessing on our lives, not just for our past, but also for our present, and not just in the present, but also in the future. God has given us everything we need by means of His grace. And as we make our way through this passage, we will find four statements for the sufficiency of God's grace. Four statements for the sufficiency of God's grace. The first is given to us in verse 11. God's grace is sufficient for our past life of sin. God's grace is sufficient for our past, our past life of sin. One of the dominant truths that we have seen in our study of Romans is the pervasiveness of sin. Before Christ, we were dominated by sin. Before Christ, we were controlled by sin, compelled by sin. Sin is what we wanted, and sin is what we did. Even, even when we tried to do good, we were trying to do good apart from God. So, so we wanted obedience to the law, we wanted to do right kinds of things, but we wanted to do right kinds of things without God, to, to prove to God that we are worthy of Him and that He has no right to judge us and condemn us. That's the unregenerate heart, that's the unbelieving heart. Everything we tried to do was without God. And then God intervened. The, 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 the great words of Scripture and God's grace are, but God. So, so in the midst of our sin, God has, God has intervened and God has stepped in and said, I have a solution to your problem of sin that is so pervasive in your life. And while we don't see those words, but God, in this passage, the sense of those words is here, for the grace of God has appeared. For those who are needy and for those who are weak and for those who are suffering and, and for those who are troubled by sin, God's grace has shown up and God's grace has appeared. Now by that, Paul does not mean to imply that before this, there was an absence of God's grace. He's not saying that in the Old Testament there was no grace from God. In fact, the Old Testament is filled with manifestations of God's grace. So listen to what, listen to what Moses says in Genesis chapter six, chapter 6. He says in verse 6, The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and He was grieved in His heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man... I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry I've made them. Man was so rebellious against God, God said, I'm going to wipe out my creation. Verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But God intervened 
and was gracious to Noah. That word favor denotes the grace of God, the favor of God, the undeserved kindness of God. And we, we find that kind of kindness and grace all through the Old Testament. Consider just one more example, Psalm 84, verse 11. The Lord God is a son and a shield. So He gives light and He gives heat, but, but He doesn't just give light and heat extensively and only, he also provides protection underneath the sun. So he is sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. What kind of grace does God give? Does God give? How, how is God glorified? How is God revealed in the giving of grace? Notice the end of verse 11, Psalm 84. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He's full of grace. How full is He of grace? If there is a good thing for you in your life and you are godly, He will not withhold it from you. It's not because you deserve it. It's not because He is compelled to because of your great goodness. It is because He is a God of immense grace. So we see God's grace in the Old Testament. But Paul here means the grace of God has appeared now in a, in a new way, in a, in a magnificent way. There's been a particular appearance or a, a sudden appearance or a, a sudden revelation of God's grace that we haven't seen before. That word appearance is, is used particularly of, of divine action, like, like light suddenly appearing when God was creating the world and there was just darkness and then all of a sudden, light on His creation. In a similar way, His grace has appeared in the world in a particular way. And His grace has appeared in a particular way. Not just God is kind, but it has appeared in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Notice, notice just skip down a half dozen verses to chapter 3, verse 4. When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. So God is kind and He loves mankind and that appeared in a particular way. Verse 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, so not according to our good works, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So so what was the grace, verse 4, that appeared suddenly by which we are saved by means of the Holy Spirit? It is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has appeared. Jesus Christ is the one who has suddenly appeared after 400 years of silence. Suddenly we say, there's the Messiah. He's here. He's arrived. And this is God's grace. Of all the places that we experience God's grace, we experience God's grace particularly in God's Son. One writer has said this, the early Christians did not say in dismay, Look what the world has come to. But in delight, look what has come to the world. They did not merely, they, they saw not merely the ruin, but the resource for the reconstruction of that ruin. They saw not merely that sin did abound, but that grace did much more abound. 
On that assurance, the pivot of history swung from blank despair, loss of moral nerve and fatalism, to faith and confidence that at last sin had met its match. The grace of God has appeared. And you want to see the grace of God? Look to Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment of God's grace. Now notice what else God's grace did when it when it arrived. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. It brings salvation to everyone without limitation. Now he does not mean by that that all men are saved. He does not mean that that all men are inherently saved of their own accord or out of God's grace. He just overlooks the sin and even if people are rebellious against Christ, they're saved anyway. He's not talking about universalism. But he does mean that the grace of God has appeared in such a way that if anyone is going to be saved, the grace of God that is in Jesus Christ is sufficient to save that one. That that there is no limit to the power of God's grace to save. That God's grace is sufficient to save all men. And it is a reminder that God's grace is offered to everyone. No one is excluded from the offer of God's salvation. Even the lowest of the low have received the offer of salvation. And we know that even by, even by looking at the context. Notice verse 11 begins with the word, for. And the word for we might translate because or give the sense of because. And so Paul is providing a reason for what he has just said. And at the beginning of this chapter, he has talked about how people ought to conduct themselves, people in the church, how they ought to conduct themselves. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves. How should these people Conduct themselves in the body. And he says, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. In other words, a, 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 a slave can be saved by the grace of God in such a way that he has genuine faith such that, the end of verse 10, they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Even a slave can manifest the glory of God and the grace of God in salvation. And that is no small thing that Paul says. Because while it's different in the church, culturally, slaves were viewed as inanimate, or excuse me, as animated tools. That they were, that they were living beings, but they did not have personhood. And so Paul says, even these who the culture regards as not people can be saved by the power of God's grace. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. God is a Savior of all men in that He makes the offer of salvation to all men and He has graciously withheld His final wrath from all men so that they have an opportunity to hear this great news of the Gospel. He is the Savior of all men. That is, there is no limitation on those who can believe. My friend, any one can believe. No one is excluded. No one is precluded from believing. And friends, 
This is great news for us. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you have experienced God's grace that has freed you from God's wrath. And friend, you did not deserve that, nor did I. What we deserved only was God's wrath. But but we have been made free and we're no longer under condemnation and, and we're no longer bound by sin. We're no longer compelled by sin. We are, as Jesus says in John 8, free indeed. We are genuinely liberated. My friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, this is still good news for you because the offer of salvation is being made to you. Christ came to redeem you from your sin, to buy you out of your sin, to give you new life out of your sin. And Christ is sufficient and able to save you. He is adequate to save you. My friend, there is no sin so great that it cannot be overcome by Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. There is no sin that you can have committed by which that sin supersedes God's grace that comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ can atone for any sin. And Jesus Christ can atone for every sin. And the issue simply is, will you believe? And if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I urge you and compel you, come to this one who has has come to liberate you from sin. He doesn't want you under the condemnation of God and He doesn't want you under the power of sin. He wants you to be liberated in every way. Oh friend, He is the kindest, most gracious, most benevolent kind of God there is. Come to Him and embrace Him for your salvation. You may be here this morning and be a believer, but if you're like most of us who are believers, we have friends, we have family, we have loved ones, we have, we have those who are intimately close to us who do not trust yet in Jesus Christ. And it's, it's possible to become weary and overwhelmed and burdened and grieved and hopeless and despairing that they will never come to Christ. Well, friend, it is not over. Jesus Christ has appeared bringing salvation to all men. And if that friend of yours, that family member of yours is alive, there's an opportunity for repentance. I was thinking about this concept earlier this week and just reflecting back on what we have seen in Romans, way back in Romans chapter 3, we read and talked about this verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. We, we all deserve God's wrath. All of us have, have failed to attain to living for God's glory on our own. All of us have been rebellious against God. All of us deserve God's wrath. And that's, that's really the focus of the first three chapters in Romans. And then the very next thing he says, Romans 3.23 And then in verse 24, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified. (laughs) How? I've sinned and I've been rebellious and I've been against Him. How How can I be justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus? Friend, there's hope. 
There's hope that 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 thing that has bound you or bound your family member or constrained your family member, there is hope that the God of grace, the Christ of grace that has appeared, will yet liberate that one from sin. Oh friend, what most of us need, what all of us need most, is salvation from God's wrath. And that is exactly what has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. Salvation from God's wrath. And this is the good news that we have been proclaiming and rejoicing in for 40 years. It is, it is, what, it is, the, it is, it is the bedrock foundation of what we have been saying and what the church was founded on 40 years ago. This grace of God that, that brings salvation, everything flows out of this provision of God's grace in our salvation. God's grace has appeared in Christ and it is sufficient to liberate us. But there's even more good news about God's grace. It is good for the past And it is sufficient for the present. God's grace is sufficient for our present battle with sin. It's not just good for our past life with sin. It's good for our present battle with sin. And it's good in several ways. It is good in that God's grace enables us to say no to sin. God's grace enables us to say no to sin. I think what is true of me is probably true of you as well. The greatest problem in my life is me. The, the, the greatest struggle I have in my life is my struggle with me. I can't sleep at night because I am anxious. I have problems in my relationships because of my conduct and my words. And I struggle with pride and various temptations because I have desires that are fleshly and ungodly. My, my problem is not outside of me. My problem is inside of me. I need help. And God's gracious salvation has liberated me from the penalty of sin, but friends, I still need help for the power of sin. I need help with the want to of sin. I need, I need help with the desire for sin and, and the working out and the getting rid of the fleshly inclination to sin. And my friend, God's grace helps us with that as well. Notice what Paul says in verse 12. The grace of God has appeared. That verb appeared is the dominant verb in this section. And secondary to the appearance of God's grace is that God's grace is instructing us to deny ungodliness. It is, it is continuing to instruct and inform us to deny ungodliness. In the person of Jesus Christ, Grace teaches us. Jesus Christ graciously teaches us how to deny ungodliness and teaches us to deny ungodliness. And friends, we need to be taught. We need to be instructed because we are weak and we are frail. We are ignorant and we are prone to be deceived. And we need this instruction that comes by grace through the person of Jesus Christ. And my friends, Jesus Christ continues to provide the very grace and instruction that we need. He instructs us to deny ungodliness. Notice that the goal of Christ's instruction is not that we know something, but that we do something and we think something. 
It's not just to fill our heads with information. It is to be transformative in our lives to change fundamentally what we do and how we think and how we operate. And he says, first of all, the instruction is to deny ungodliness. To deny ungodliness means more than just, I'm going to avoid ungodliness. It means that we renounce ungodliness. It means that we understand that sin is not an inconvenience. Sin will destroy us. And so, because we understand sin will destroy us, we repudiate it and we renounce it and we disown it and we disown its power over us. We we will not go with sin. We will go against sin and go with anything that is for God. We actively and aggressively and purposely fight against and resist sin. But notice that this grace that comes to us not only instructs us to deny ungodliness, but also instructs us to deny worldly desires. My problem is not just that I say wrong things. And I do. My, my, one, of, one of the battles of my life is keeping the three ounces of wet mucus in my mouth under control. And it is a problem for me to control my tongue, not because of external things, but because of internal things. I don't know how many times I have prayed, Lord, I, I, I not only want to stop saying those things, I am sick of those things running through my mind. I, I want to stop thinking those things. And Paul says that's the very thing that, that God will do in us and for us by His grace, that He will... He will teach us to deny worldly desires. My friends, if we're going to win the battle against sin, the battle is not just won in fighting against external things. Friends, we've got to win it on the inside. Jesus says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We, we speak and we act because we have desires within. And if we want to win the fight against sin, we have to win the fight of the mind. Why do I want my sin? What am I wanting so badly that I'm willing to sin in order to get it? What am I wanting so badly that I'm willing to sin to avoid it? If we want to win the fight against sin, we will fight sin against the level, fight sin at the level of our desires. And friends, God's grace gives us just that. Friday I'd finished writing my message and jumped on Twitter to post something on Twitter and saw somebody else had posted something and I thought, that can't be true. And I went to it and I found it and it was true. And so many of you will know the name Josh Harris, Joshua Harris written a number of books on dating um, and sexuality, marriage. Wrote a great little book called um, Sex is Not the Problem, Lust is. Great book. We gave out, I don't know, 60, 80, 100 copies of his book, Stop Dating the Church, a number of years ago, because it was an excellent book on church membership. 
And so here's a man who's been in ministry for 20 years in an influential and significant church in Maryland for a number of years and announced about 10 days ago that he and his wife were getting a divorce. And my heart sank. So he announced he's getting divorced. Here's the one who's taught about marriage and taught about family, taught about sexuality. And then on Friday, I believe it was Friday, it may have been Thursday, he posted another thing on Instagram. And he said this, the information that was left out of our announcement of our divorce is that I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people will tell me that there is a different way to practice faith and I want to remain open to this. But I am not there now. I can't get it out of my head. I had a miserable night of sleep on Friday in part because of that. And my first thought, perhaps, is like yours, how? How does someone end up in that position? How, how does someone who has done so much seemingly for the cause of Christ fallen so far that he now says, I reject Christ as my Savior? I can tell you, He did not fall far. It looked to us from the outside, those who don't know him, that it was far, but he just took one more step. He's been falling for a long time. And what he has not been doing, I know nothing about the man other than what I've read from him and about about him. But I can tell you what's going on. And that is that when the grace of God appeared and instructed him to deny ungodliness. He never dealt with worldly desires. The grace of God was fully sufficient to accommodate the longings of his heart and he didn't go there. And instead of cultivating cultivating grace to minister to his ungodly desires and worldly desires, he cultivated the worldly desires. And we have merely seen the last step in the progression of ungodly thinking. Oh, friend, if you are struggling this morning, know that that God has not only called you to deal with ungodliness and to deny it and to repudiate it and to reject it, but He has given you every grace that you need to win that battle in your mind to where your mind can say no. And isn't it interesting that that the Apostle in this verse nowhere says, here are six steps to to mortifying the flesh. Here are six steps to, to denying sin. He just says, do it. Because God's grace is sufficient for you to do that. 
God's grace is sufficient for you to say, I reject that temptation and I crucify, I, I reject that thought and that desire and I, I align my heart to the desire of Christ instead. God's grace, when it is fully applied, is sufficient to accomplish that. It is possible like Joseph, to flee temptation because you have decided that your allegiance is to God and not to worldly desires. God's grace teaches us that we need to say no to sin and then it empowers us to be able to say no to sin. You know, before salvation, the only thing we could do was indulge the flesh. That's all we could do. Now, the indulgence of the flesh had lots of different manifestations Sometimes indulgence of the flesh looks like somebody who's a really good person because it's all based in self-righteousness. But, but before Christ, that's all we could do was, was keep feeding the flesh. And now, friend, after Christ, it is possible to say no to sin. There's another amazing part of God's grace for us in the present, and it is this, that God's grace enables us to say yes to obedience. God's grace in Christ not only teaches us what to do in relation to sin, but it also teaches us how to live in relation to God, how, how we are to live in a way that, that demonstrates His glory and His goodness. It teaches us both what we are to stop doing and what we are to start doing, how we, how we can put off unrighteousness and put on righteousness. There is a way to live that reflects God's grace and God's salvation. And that's the way we are to live. And we are instructed in that as well. Verse 12, instructing us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. We are to live sensibly. That's the word soberly. This is the word that is that one is self-controlled and he is disciplined in his living. It is the kind of living that comes from a sound mind. He's clear and sober thinking and serious thinking and, and pure thinking. It is, it is self-restraint because it understands what the consequences of rebellion are. We are to live righteously, not just, not just um, sensibly, but righteously. There, there's a right thing to do. There's a right thing to say in every kind of circumstance. And, and that's the way we are to live. And that's what God's grace teaches us to do. It teaches us how we can respond in right ways. And rather than embracing our sin, how we might live in righteous ways. And we are to live godly. This is the antithesis to the ungodliness that we're to, to deny. The godly man does the things that God sanctions and desires. And notice that with all three of these things, there is intention and purpose. The person who is godly, listen to me, the person who is godly is not accidentally godly. No one one accidentally falls into godliness. The person who is godly you know, has cultivated a life of godliness. He has purposed in his heart. He has made plans in his heart. He has disciplined himself and has relied on God's grace so that he pursues actively soberness and sensibleness and righteousness and godly Christ-like character. And friends, God's grace is sufficient for you to do that. God's grace also is sufficient for our present battle with sin in that God's grace enables us to live in this world. 
God's grace instructs us and gives us grace to deny sin and embrace righteousness. Paul says, notice the end of the verse, in the present age. That word present generally is translated in the New Testament now, in the, in the now age, in the here and now, where, where you are living, in your house, in your circumstances, in, in your culture, God's grace is sufficient. In the middle of a world in which we are surrounded by corruption and deceit and rebellion, anger, hatred, dishonesty, perversity, God's grace has given us everything we need to live righteously and honorably to Him. This this has got to have been a really helpful encouragement to the people who Paul was writing to, Titus and the other elders and the churches in Crete, because they lived in a in a pervasively wicked culture. He says in chapter 1, verse 12, one of themselves, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. We, we get the term Cretan by which we denote somebody who's just a loser, a slackard, a, 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 a ne'er-do-well. We get that term Cretan from this passage. That's their legacy. And then Paul says that's what they themselves say about themselves. And then he says in verse 13, this testimony is true. That's what they really are. And he's not, he's not slamming them. He's just affirming that is the reality of the way these people live. And, and they were influencing the church and attempting to come into the church. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And God had the churches of Crete in a Cretan culture. And he said, the grace of God is sufficient for the present age. It's sufficient. Oh, friends, it is adequate. It is not impossible to live godly in this world. We, we don't need to be taken out of this world in order to live godly. We... we have the protection. We have everything we need in the grace of God to survive in this world while we live in it. Interestingly, Jesus in in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he's talking to the Father and talking about the disciples and he says says about them, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world Notice, even as I am not of the world. So because they are in me and I am not of the world, they are also not of the world. They're, they're not in the world anymore. They're not identified by the world. They're not identified by their sin. And so he says in verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Don't you wish sometimes that Jesus had said, God, take them out. He says, I'm not, I'm not asking that. I'm not asking you to remove them and their testimony. But he does say, but I am asking to keep them from the evil one. Again, verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Friend, if you're in Christ, you're no longer identified with the world, and you have everything you need to survive in this world. You don't need to be taken out in order to make it. God's grace... God's grace is adequate for you. Says one commentator, right here, right now, 
God's grace operates to make us the kind of people who live the kind of lives that honor God and benefit others and ourselves. The grace of God extends the power not just to rescue us from an evil world, but to transform us in the midst of it. God's grace is adequate from that. And and friends, this is... This is what has been just such an amazing joy to see for 40 years of ministry in this place. We know each other's stories. You know my story. I know your stories. Some to a greater degree, some to a lesser degree. And we know our failures and we know our weaknesses and, and, and we know, we know the propensity to sin in particular areas in our lives. And you know what I think about when I see you and what when, when, when I see you knowing some of you, some of your greatest weaknesses and some of your greatest failures, you know what I see? I see the word G-R-A-C-E, grace. Because I've seen how God has taken that failure, and you've seen it as well, how God's taken failure and, and woven grace into life and redeemed and bought back and sanctified and transformed. So we're no longer identified with what we were, but we are now identified with what we are in Jesus Christ. He is sufficient. He is sufficient for our present battle with sin. Thirdly, He is sufficient for our future life with Christ. Notice verse 13. God's grace has not only appeared, but... That appearance is instructing us in particular ways and part of that instruction now is verse 13 to look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We are, we are to look for the culmination of our salvation. We're not only, we're not only to be kind of looking like superficially like what time is it and is the preacher ever going to finish, but we are to be looking intently. Like somebody who says, I'm, I'm sending you a check in the mail and, and we go out to the mailbox and every day we're checking is the, is the, is, is the check that has been promised, is it there? Some, some event that has been promised and, and we're looking forward to and we're anticipating if, if you're, if you're engaged to be married, you're not just kind of superficially thinking, well, you know, in the by and by I'll get married. No, you can tell me how many days. My daughter's affirming she can tell me how many days. How many? 61 days until she's married. She didn't have to think about it. Why? Because she's looking. I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm anticipating. I'm longing. I'm desiring. And friends, that's the longing. That's the looking that we have for Christ. It's not just, yeah, well, Jesus is going to show up someday. No, friend, are you looking? And not just looking but like repeatedly looking. This is a present tense, so we're constantly looking, always looking, wanting Jesus Christ to come. He will appear again, and we will see the glory of our great God and Savior. This is the blessed hope. This is, this is the happy and delightful confidence that Christ will finish our salvation. He saved us from our past. He is saving us in our present. And friend, He will save us finally, fully in the future. And that's what we're looking forward to. That's where our hope is. And notice, He says, 
we look for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. He, he belongs to us and we belong to Him. We are His and He is ours and nothing can separate us from the love that He has for us. In His first incarnation, Jesus came and with very rare exception, He shielded His glory. He held it back so that men wouldn't see it. Because no man can see God's glory and live. But when He comes again, this verse tells us that there will be the full appearing of His glory. And because, 1 John tells us in chapter 3, because we are like Him, we will see Him as He is. We think about heaven and we think about all the stuff. We think about heaven and we think about roads paved with gold. We think of, we think of gates that are made out of a single pearl. How massive must that be? How valuable must that be? We think about relationships that will be renewed. I think about a tongue that will be under control and no longer struggling with saying the right word, but that's fully sanctified. We think about the removal of sin. We, we, think, about, we think about the removal of illness. For those of us who have, have failing and weakening bodies, we're looking forward to the time when there are no more doctor visits and no more medications for eternity. Friend, all that pales to one thing. The appearance of the glory of a great God and Savior. What, ma- what, what matters in heaven is not that all that stuff is given to us, but that we get Christ. And that's what we're looking forward to and that's what we're longing for and that's what we want. We get Jesus. This is God's grace. God's grace has paid for your sin. God's grace is redeeming you from your sin. And God's grace is taking you to Christ. There's one more thing that Paul will say in these verses. And that is that, is that God's grace is sufficient for our ongoing ministry in this world. He reminds us in verse 14 of some of the things he's already said. Christ came. Why did Christ came? He came to give himself for us, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his, his own possession, zealous for good deeds. He, he died to redeem us from sin, to pay the penalty of sin, and he died to purify us for him, to belong to him, to sanctify us. He died so that we could put off sin and put on righteousness. And then he says in verse 15, these things speak and exhort and reprove. We have a ministry, friends. If you have received the grace of God, you have a ministry. And that is you are to be a grace giver. You are to point people to the grace that you have received. These things speak 
That is, teach and instruct others about the truths that, that Paul has just talked about, about God's grace. And then not just speak, but, but go the next step and exhort with it. Call people to action when they are weary and help them when they are weak and, and draw them out of the mud of their sin with this word of grace. Exhort them and then reprove them. That is, expose the sin that particular people have so that their lives are corrected, so they repent and change and grow. Speak it, exhort it, reprove it. And then he says, and do this with all authority. It's not my authority. It's not your authority. It's not the elder's authority. It's not this church's authority. It's Christ's authority. And it's the authority that comes from His book, His Word. This book is powerfully transformative. All we have to do is teach it and teach the grace that is in it and people will be changed. And friends, this is hopeful. You will, you will get people who will say, oh, you teach that and exhort and you reprove and you correct and, 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 and you compel and it's just all mean-spirited. Well, it's possible that when we do those things, we are mean-spirited and we should never be mean-spirited when, when we do it. But friend, we should always be pointing to Christ because that is the only hope that anyone will ever have. There's no hope apart from Jesus Christ. What else, what else will we teach? What else will we say except the grace that comes through Jesus Christ? That's the way we point people to hope and to the solution of their greatest need. I've been pastoring for just a couple of years when Regine and I went to a Christian concert and ran into a, a guy that I'd worked with while in seminary and he was still in seminary and he asked me the question, he says, does it work? Does what work? No, our, our, our seminary motto, preach the word, does it work? Are, are people changed and transformed when, when we just preach the word? I don't remember exactly what I said to him that day, but friend, for all the years that this church has stood here, it works. When you preach the Word and unfold the Word and explain the Word, people are changed by the grace that is in this Word. It is very much akin to what Martin Luther expressed when he explained the success of the Reformation. He said, I have opposed the indulgences and all the papists, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept... The word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. For it is almighty and takes captive the hearts. And if the hearts are captured, the evil work will fall of itself. Oh, friends, this is the effective work of Christ's grace. His grace has done it all. Our Father, we thank You for this reminder of the sufficiency and the power and the authority of Your grace. Might we live in it? Might we live in it in such a way that those of us who have not trusted Christ will come to trust Christ this morning. And those of us who have trusted Christ will grow in sanctification increasingly. And those of us who have this hope of grace will anticipate the glory that will be to reveal, be, be revealed at the coming of Christ. Oh, Father, 
Make us bold with this truth. Might we be not only grace receivers, but grace givers and grace teachers. Might we be transformed by your grace as you have already begun to do in us. And would you continue to make us to be those who will boldly stand for the grace of God. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.